Hey friends, it's Mark James and today is Thursday, the 11th of January. Yes, I recognise I'm a day late, but I am here. Um, I should have been here yesterday, but I wasn't because I just got too busy. Sarah was off work. We watched that entire drama about the post office scandal. In case you do or don't know what this is, I will quickly elucidate. Essentially, 20 years ago... In the UK, the post... <laughs> this feels like a heavy start, by the way. I feel like I've gotten sidetracked already. But uh, essentially in the UK, about 20 years ago, there was a scandal with the British Post Office. And essentially, sub-postmasters, so people who ran post office counters in small convenience store kind of shops in villages and things like that, the people who took that on in a kind of franchised manner, not quite a franchise, but not dissimilar from a franchise, they were running their businesses all fine and dandy, dandy and fine, doing their own accounts with paper and pens and books and things. And then the post office decided to implement a computer system from the company Fujitsu. And the computer system was called Horizon. And essentially, Horizon, despite the post office's protestations to the contrary, was uh, dysfunctional. It had quirks in it that meant programming errors and also the fact that the central Fujitsu office was able to log in and see takings and profits and losses and edit figures and all that sort of stuff, even though they also lied about the fact that they were capable of doing that. They, um, they started using this computer system and it would give them incorrect balances. So it made it look like the people who were running the post offices were essentially stealing money. And the post office accused them of doing just that. The central business of the post office accused them of doing just that. And so what happened was, in the UK for over 300 years, for reasons nobody's entirely sure of, the post office is capable of mounting its own criminal investigations and trials without the police itself ever actually being involved. And so the post office became investigator and sort of not quite judge and jury, but certainly prosecutor as well, and took all of these people to court and loads of people had to pay back money that they never lost in the first place. Some of them 40, 50, 60,000 pounds that they never actually owed in the first place. The post office made them believe that they did for errors that they believed they made, but they hadn't made. And some people, I mean, most of them lost their businesses. Most of them had to stop working in the post office system. Some of them sadly committed suicide. Some of them went to jail. I mean, it really ruined people's lives in a catastrophic way. And even now, over 20 years later, these people have not been compensated. And even now, the people who were criminally prosecuted and went to jail for it have not been pardoned of their crimes. And of course, having a criminal record alters your life in all sorts of terrible ways. It affects jobs you're able to apply for, places you're able to travel, just lots of things that you're able to do with your life are hampered by having had a criminal record. So it ruined people's lives in an ongoing way, even to this day. And so... Essentially, a drama was written about that, a four-part drama, and it was on ITV, one of the kind of main terrestrial TV channels here in the UK. And so 
the country is kind of up in arms about it. And the country had heard about it, maybe, but didn't really care, I guess. And now, having seen it as a TV drama, people are beside themselves about it. And it is quite shocking. You know, it makes it a very human story. When you hear the phrase, or even if you read in the paper, you know, 60, 70, 80, 500 sub-postmasters have been incorrectly um, prosecuted for stealing money that they didn't steal, you sort of think, oh gosh, that sounds bad. Oh well. I mean, you know, that's the way we react to news. But when you watch a drama that follows very specific people and their stories and shows them as very ordinary people, you realise what a miscarriage of justice this is because you sort of see okay, this has happened to them, and them could just as easily have been me. This could have happened to me. And then I think we galvanise, don't we, when we get behind stuff. So there was a four-part drama on ITV. It was all on demand, because it's all played out already on the days that it came out. So Sarah and I essentially watched the whole thing. We ended up kind of binging it, because it ended up being pretty good. Some of the acting was a bit GCSE drama, but in general... It was very good, um, and we enjoyed it. So we watched that for about four hours yesterday and then did some other stuff. And then I was going to record, and I sort of fell asleep. One thing about being back from Singapore for... Let me just check how long I've been back now. Oh, a week tomorrow is when we actually got back. We got back a week tomorrow. My body clock, again, just like when we came back from America... It just hasn't shifted back to where it's supposed to be. I am not in the place that I'm supposed to be body clockwise. I just, I'm shifted by a few hours. I've been falling asleep in the living room watching TV with Sarah at about half past nine every night and then waking up at half past four in the morning. And this morning for the first time, I was really determined to not get out of bed and go and get in the bath or something. I just thought, go to the toilet, come back and just force yourself back to sleep. Do not move out of the bed until you've fallen back to sleep again for a bit. So that's what I did. And I ended up sleeping until about 6.30. And I woke up at 6.30 and Sarah was already out of bed um, in her little room, getting dressed and putting her makeup on and doing her hair or, you know, whatever she does in the morning. And I sort of laid there kind of trying to go back to sleep a bit, hugging the dog a little bit, um, sort of looking at my phone, checking if I had any emails, messages, whatever. And the next thing I know, I've kind of been a bit in and out and I hear Joshua getting up and it's seven o'clock and he comes in the room and asks if I'm all right. And I'm like, yeah. And then the next thing you know, I'm up as well. So still not quite on the right pattern. What I need to do tonight is try and stay up a little bit later, maybe just a little bit so that I wake up a little bit later tomorrow and then I'll start to shift back to pattern. Tomorrow I'm going to the session, the magic convention that I did a year ago on these same dates and it's back around again. So I really need to get my body clock right. No doubt at the session I'll stay up too late and get up too early and end up, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> messing with my body clock even more. i got a few friends that are going to be at this that'll want to hang out and stuff. I need to be good, really, and just go to bed on time. I did it last year. I honestly, I did stay over. I must have stayed in the hotel. I think I only stayed one night. I think I went, stayed a night, did my performances and stuff, and then drove back. 
I'm staying two nights this time. Can't remember if I stayed two nights last time or not. I honestly cannot remember. Anyway, not that it really matters. So today I got up. Obviously, today's podcast is going to be predominantly about um, the cruise again, the second half of it. But today I got up and got dressed and we were all out of the house together, roughly together, at about 10 to 8. I walked Sarah to work and then my intention was to get my hair cut and go for a run, run home. Now, I dropped Sarah off at work at half 8 and then I walked up to the barber. The barber's usually in about quarter to 9 He didn't get there till half past nine. His car broke down or something happened. And the other barber, who usually comes in a bit later, came in at half nine. And then the original guy who was supposed to be in, he turned up at like quarter to ten while I was getting my hair cut. So I ended up sitting in town in shorts, by the way. Thankfully, I'd thought to wear a top. I wore the three-quarter zip that I bought, the Chicago Cubs one that I bought over the top. And um, I was also wearing a running vest, you know, the kind that holds your phone and stuff, underneath that top so I could take my phone with me because it didn't really go in the pocket of my running shorts. They're too light. And uh, I got my hair cut and then I walked down to the record shop and I spoke to them and had a little chat. And actually, it reminded me, when I was in Chicago, my friend Ryan took me to a record shop and I got a t-shirt from there and he's a big record collector as well and the t-shirts at my record shop are like five pound so I'm going to buy one of those uh, for him and take it to him so I need to pop into town tomorrow as well to get one of those t-shirts so that I can uh, give it to him at the session because he's come over from Chicago to perform and lecture so that'll be fun anyway So I did that this morning and then I did run home and I got to the end of the first mile and honestly, I was absolutely blown out of my arse. I was on the phone to my friend John while I was running and that wasn't really affecting the run, but I was finding it hard. I was running like a 10 minute mile, but it was tough. And then I decided when I hit the first mile, I thought, right, I'll walk for one minute and then I'll start running again. And then while I was timing out that minute, the battery on my running watch died, which is no good. So I was honest and I did run the rest pretty much ran the rest all the way home, but had a couple of little breaks, but I don't know what my run was like because my watch was dead, so I wasn't able to properly time it. Anyway, not that it's that important. At least I ran outside and sort of broke the cycle a little bit. I'm going to run while I'm away. The hotel I'm in has got a gym and stuff, so I'll probably run in their gym, do my 5k on the treadmill in the gym. That'll feel good, get it done in the mornings and stuff, give me something to do. And then... um, It's a month until Nashville. Literally, we fly to Nashville in one month. Uh, It's actually, I'll be 28, 29, 30. So including today, 31 days. It's the 11th of January today, and we fly on the 11th of February. So there you go. And obviously the gig starts on the 12th, but we actually go on the 11th, and we're staying in like an airport hotel. Not that everything's that far away in Nashville. We're staying in like an airport hotel on the Sunday night. So I'd really like to drop some weight, as I said before, so that I can be in a nice suit, but also not worry about drinking or eating too much or whatever. I'd really like to go out on that Sunday night with Sarah when we first get to Nashville and just have like a really nice time out. Drinks, maybe some dancing, some wings. (laughs) Drinks and dancing would be good though, wouldn't it? She'd like that and I'd like that. But if I'm all like, oh, God, my suit's tight, I don't, that's not going to happen. So I need to stop being a dick and get exercising and start eating healthy. I've done that today so far. I've exercised. So I'm on the right track. 
So let's go. We've got a month until Nashville. But um, I did my first run, got home. And then it's just been jobs, jobs, jobs. Our toilet got blocked. Our toilet gets blocked all the time. And it's a combination of the fact that Joshua has absolutely size 10 turds for a start. But also, I think we have quite an awkward U-bend. I think our plumbing at this house is not exactly designed for the forearm-sized turds that our 12-year-old knocks out on a daily <laughs> daily basis. So we've bought this thing. I'm sure I've told you about it before. But it's kind of, it's a toilet unblocker, but it's fantastic. And essentially, it creates like an air stream that forces blockages around the U-bend by plugging the hole. And it's, it's like an accordion. I don't know how to describe it, really. It's like a conical accordion. If you imagine a plastic um, cone, like a traffic cone, imagine a plastic traffic cone with a pointy end, but the pointy end is open and the the other end has got like a handle on it that pumps in and out. But the whole cone itself is like an accordion. So it squashes down and opens wide. And what it allows it to do is draw in a tremendous amount of air, which when you push it down, forces the air around the U-bend and the water too. And so far... It's been able to deal with every blockage we've ever had. And the toilet gets blocked probably once a month. So I just put that thing in down through the hole and I just pump it three or four times and the toilet is basically empty. It looks like a brand new toilet. No water in it or anything. It's fully empty. And then you flush the toilet and boom, it's running clear as day. Anyway, I had to do that today. <laughs> I've also built another IKEA Billy bookcase. We've got three of those in the living room now, but they're all short ones. They're the ones that are kind of hip height. And um, I built a new one and that's in the living room now in the place where the Christmas tree was, which is kind of where we've always been headed with this room now on the new rejig. We still want to lift the carpet and maybe try wooden floors, but it does feel like a big job. It'll require moving all the furniture, but um, it's not an impossible job. It's just a big job. There's other stuff that needs doing in the house as well. Predominantly, a lot of my shit needs moving from downstairs, but we're really getting there. Next week, Sarah's away all week working. She's going to be down in Croydon in London, and I'm at home with Joshua all week by myself. I've got one gig next week, but that's it. The rest of the time, it's just me and Joshua fending for ourselves. So my plan, I guess, is to try and be consistent. I'd really like to... Send Sarah off on Monday, you know, wish her well and all that and say, right, I'll see you in a week. Um, and then when I see her the next time for it, I really notice that I've lost weight. And considering if I have a good week, I can lose like 20 pounds the first week. I'd really love Sarah to see me a week later and go, wow, you look different. What a job you've done. So that's kind of my plan. Because when Sarah gets back, it will then be uh, one to it'll be three weeks until we go to Nashville. So it'll be nice to see her and give her a bit of a surprise that I did really well. I'm going down to pick her up from Croydon in the car. So that'd be quite a good thing, I think. Might be nice to give her a bit of a surprise like that. I'm supposed to be seeing my friend Stephen Williams as well, but between me and you and everyone who listens to this, <laughs> mm, I've booked an online audition for America's Got Talent. Now, that means nothing, because I've done that the last two years as well, and then I've got ended up not going through with it and not bothering, because the whole process is basically just arsing on, isn't it? It's a bit hard work. So, maybe I should really aim to crush it for that, 
so that when I go on the camera and audition, I'm like, hey, this is me. And, you know, I do a good thing. I don't know. But I'm thinking about that as well. I'm thinking about having to go at America's Got Talent. And I need to do something this year. I need to do something to break the cycle and try and create some new opportunities. Don't get me wrong. I'm really happy. I'm really, really happy with the way my life and career are going. And actually, I have had loads of opportunities and I've done loads of things. And I've done loads of things that other people certainly wish they were doing. You know, I've just come back from a cruise in Singapore Four weeks before that or six weeks before that, I was in America doing shows in California and Chicago. And six weeks or eight weeks before that, I was doing shows in America at the Magic Castle. And in between those two things, I had an absolutely jam-packed season of shows that I enjoyed. And I had a nice Christmas season. And I'm about to go to Nashville in a month. And um, eight weeks after that, I'm going to... Chicago again, which I just booked and I've got a cruise ship in between and a busy season of gigs and, you know, loads of good stuff and loads of opportunities and loads of things that I want to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm really happy and things are going well. But as Sarah keeps saying to me, if you haven't made it by the time you're 40, (laughs) maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe a big thing is not going to happen. And you know, it's really funny up until recently, I was kind of, I didn't mind a big thing not happening. I didn't mind some big change or some not getting some big break. I, I am kind of happy with my lot. I get to think of ideas and then work on my, those ideas and, you know, occasionally hire fellow professionals to help me with them or speak to my friends who are professionals about it and just sit dreaming about different stuff and then buy the props for that thing or get stuff made or make stuff myself, whatever, you know, I get to really fuck about essentially. And then sometimes that messing around comes to fruition and I do it on stage in front of people and they go, yeah, it's good, that, isn't it? And I get paid for it. And the the effort sort of seems worthwhile. So I really was happy with that life and I enjoy it. But I do constantly think, more recently than ever, I do think, what if I have got a little bit of something? What if I've just got that ability to do a little bit of something more? What if I could find a bigger audience or a bigger platform? And what if I could just, you know, get bigger gigs or get more money or, you know, maybe it would only make freedom to do more messing around and more creativity and more finding what's out there. But, you know, just feel like I've got to give it a go. I feel like what I haven't been doing is uh, putting myself out there. I haven't been taking enough risks when it comes to getting seen by a bigger audience. And maybe something like America's Got Talent is that opportunity. Maybe that's the thing that I should be doing. So I'm going to give it a go. And maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that audition and I'll give it a bash. We'll see. So what else have I done today? <laughs> um, I've done a podcast before this one. I actually am a guest on a new podcast that Alakazam Magic are putting out. It's called Desert Island Tricks. It's quite funny. I had to th- now, if you know Desert Island Discs, of course, you'll know what I'm on about. You get marooned on a desert island and mainly celebrities go on there or, you know, captains of industry or scientists who've done great things or, you know, criminologists. And they have all sorts of people on. It's kind of a British radio institution. 
They go on and they choose eight records that they would take with them to a desert island and why. And it's kind of really just a device for them to talk about their lives. And I got asked to go on Desert Island Tricks, which is a new uh, Alakazam podcast. But when we started the recording, the guy said, right, Mark, so you've got four minutes to talk about each trick. And I just laughed straight away. (laughs) And he was like, don't worry, I'll keep you on track. We'll get it done in four minutes. Anyway, mine's going to be a two-parter and they're both an hour long. (laughs) I did the first part. It was like 50 minutes and he went, right, we're only at the fourth trick and we've done 50 minutes. So this is going to have to be a two-parter. And then we stopped the recording and he went, but don't worry, it's been fantastic. And he really put my mind at rest. And he said, you know, one thing that's been different about yours compared to other ones I've recorded is that... It has been long, but you've also given tons of historical information. You've cited sources. You've talked about the books that you got the tricks from. You've talked about inspirations. You referenced your childhood. And really, I sort of did what they do on actual Desert Island Discs, I suppose. I used the tricks as a jumping off point to have what I hope is a more interesting conversation. But I said to him, I have a podcast of my own, Hey Friends, and... um, I kind of have learned to talk from that. And Jamie, the guy who's who's hosting the podcast, it turns out he listens to this or has listened to this on occasion. So he knew exactly what I meant. So that was kind of funny. Uh, and he knows that I can talk. So I guess they could have expected me to go on a little bit. Um, it's kind of one of my special skills is being able to rabbit nonstop without taking a break. So I did that today as well. And that was over an hour of my life recording that. And then I've built these cupboards and tried to do a bit of tidying up. And before you know it, it's 5.43. Sarah will just be finishing work. Joshua will be waiting outside for her because he went from school to the computer game store where he goes and plays and stuff. And when he gets home, we're going to play this Dungeons and Dragons board game. Now, I'll be honest and say, actually, it's a lot of fun. Dungeons and Dragons probably requires a bit more storytelling and sort of um, fantasy land play than maybe I want to get into. Storytelling is, of course, my thing, but the kind of storytelling required for Dungeons and Dragons probably requires you to be more of a fan of Lord of the Rings and stuff than I am. But what we've bought is a Dungeons and Dragons board game. And so it kind of takes you by the hand a little bit and allows you to play Dungeons and Dragons, but with quite a bit more structure. It's not really a board game in the Monopoly sense. It really is just kind of there is a board that you put your characters on and they just move along in a, in a linear fashion along a line but you draw on every turn you draw a card and the card tells you what is now happening so either you're in a situation where you roll to gain something or you roll to lose something or you're fighting an enemy and at the end of each board and there's four small boards that you move along you fight a sort of different end of land boss and then you get to a great end of the game boss at the end and um it's also co-play so there's three of us obviously Sarah and Joshua and I but you play as a team. You never fight against each other or anything. It's kind of um, collaborative and players can donate items to each other to help them fight certain, you know, monsters and get the get the thing done. 
Uh, it's very good. It's kind of nice, the collaborative aspect of it. But whereas I might not necessarily want to make up a story in order to play Dungeons & Dragons, the story is kind of built right into this. The only thing it does is it triggers you to be creative. So it says, uh, decide a way that you will kill this monster using magic. How will you use your magic power to kill this monster? And then roll, and then it'll give you parameters like it, you use a 20-sided dice. So it's like if you roll 1 to 5, nothing happens. 5 to 10, you do this amount of damage. 10 to 15, you do this amount of damage. And it's kind of, it's Dungeons & Dragons, but with a lot of structure, which made it very easy for all of us to play. I mean, we had to use the instructions to play the first game pretty ruthlessly, but tonight when we play again, and we will play again tonight, we will not need the instructions at all because we fully understand the game. And that's good, I think. It's good that we all played it, we understood it, and Joshua absolutely loved it. He loved playing it with us, and that's kind of nice. And Sarah was really funny. She was really silly with it. She played this character that had this special power that was like a wicked laugh. <laughs> so every time she pulled it out, she did the wicked laugh and scared the shite out of me. So that was quite funny. And um, yeah, we really enjoyed it. It was a good... It's nice to do those things, isn't it, as a family, to sit around the table. And we had popcorn and um, Doritos. And yeah, it was good. I liked it a lot. It's a nice time together as a family. So go us playing that game. Still have to do loads of sorting out in my office. That job is quite brutal. I've been, I've done all the technical stuff in the office. I've rewired everything. I've put new lights up. Uh, I've kind of, everything is pretty organized, to be honest. I'm just at the phase now, which I suppose should be quite fun. And I suppose the fact that it's fun is partly why I'm almost a little bit putting it off is because I want to do a really good job of it. It's just sorting out the props. I've got absolutely tons of props that need sorting out. And um, that is kind of just sitting over me, really. That job is just kind of sitting over me. I've just realised, actually, that... Um <laughs> I've just had a message from my friend Taylor as I've gone to open uh, Messenger because I need to send another message. I've just realised that a job I need to do... Um involving getting a table made from a guy who's in the West Midlands. I'm lecturing in the West Midlands next week. Um, so I'm messaging him now to say that I'm going to be um, down in the area. Um, and Taylor's just messaged me saying season five of Prison Break is nuts. My friend Taylor has got COVID and I got him into Prison Break. And because he's got COVID for the last couple of days, he's just absolutely binged season uh, four. And now he's on season five and he's saying that uh, it's crazy. And now he's asked if I ever watched 24. Not a single episode. Not one. Never. He can't believe I've never seen it. So he's about to recommend that I watch that. Uh, I did watch Designated Survivor. Same guy. Great show. Um, and he's saying that stylistically, Prison Break is quite a lot like 24. If you haven't seen Designated Survivor, by the way, it's great. Anyway, I need to get a table made for cups and balls and multiplying bottles. Actually, I need to get legs made. I broke the legs that I had for the table I already had. And um, I'm telling the guy who lives in Wolverhampton that I'm going to be in his area because I'm lecturing there next week. So that's good. That just occurred to me in telling you what's been going on. Oh, gosh. 
anyway, so I just need to sort out all those props in the office. And once that's done, then I just need to work on the Nashville show. And then once that's done, I need to work on the actual show I'm going to do all season. And yeah, this this year I'm just going to... I mean, I'm almost sick of saying I'm going to get thin and healthy. But when I do that and I go back to Chicago, I'll film that show again and I'll get some great footage of me performing the stuff that I'm performing now. And that'll be very good for me. And yeah, I don't know, man. I'm going to take a quick pause and get a drink. Hold on. Hey, friends, I'm back. Okay, I took a little break because I realized I was spacing out a little bit. The last thing I was talking about was how it would be good for me to get video of stuff that I'm doing now. What I meant was, <laughs> it'd be good to be healthy, get some video recorded in Chicago, new video that I can use for promotion, and then use that to try and push forward a little bit. I've got some good ideas this year for some sort of video projects and things that I want to do. The problem is, you can shoot all the great video in the world, put all the effort into it, and really do everything imaginable. But there's just never any guarantee that anybody will ever watch it. I was thinking about this quite a bit before. I was thinking about, like, Mr. Beast videos or, you know, people who make content on YouTube that they know are going to get mad hits because they've got 5 million subscribers or whatever. It used to be, I remember hearing that if you got 5 million hits on a video... And I don't know how many Mr. Beast subscribers there are. Let me just check this, actually. How many hits does the average Mr. Beast video get? All right. Mr. Be <laughs> Mr. Beast has got 100 million subscribers, um, which is wild, isn't it? It's really, really wild. Um, he's got 17 billion views on youtube and that was august 2022 so it's probably gone up quite considerably since then um that's wild isn't it there's a video here about how many hits i'm gonna i'm gonna come to something in a second here on a, it says here right on average youtube pays two dollars for every thousand views his videos got 20 million views that means he must make forty thousand uh dollars per video um that means that he makes 200k a month not including generating revenue on merch that's an old answer as well so i'll bet it's more than that but what i was thinking was if i make a video and maybe a thousand people watch it <laughs> and i make two dollars I'm guaranteed to have spent more money than that on the video. But if I was in a position where when I made a video, I knew that that video was going to generate $40,000. Imagine if you, it's like a license to print money. Imagine if you knew that when you made a video, it would make $40,000. Imagine if that was a guarantee. If you make a video, it will definitely make $40,000. And that's kind of the position that Mr. Beast's in. I think that's lowballing by quite some distance. Because I remember hearing when I was at college that if you got 5 million views on a video, you would make roughly £30,000. So I'll bet that it's quite more than that now. And he gets way more than 5 million views per video. So 
just think about how much money you could invest into that video. If I make a video now, I might spend a bit of time or I might perform a trick that I've done or something, but essentially I wouldn't necessarily spend a lot of money on making the video. But if I knew that a video was going to make $40,000, I could safely and comfortably say, all right, let's spend $10,000 making this video amazing. Let's get a crew. Let's get some cameras. Let's spend some time. You could really go to town. It is actually a license to print money and a license to use that money to be creative and do something big and amazing with it. Before I tell you about uh, the crews now, my family have just walked in. Hey, Famalam! They're in the house. The dog's beefing at the door. Can you hear him squealing for them? Hello! I'm assuming one of them's going to open the door in a second. Oh, here we go. Hey, baby. I'm mid-recording. <laughs> she shut the door again. Babe! What? <laughs> she shut the door again. And now Joshua's here instead. All right, kid Oh, my God, he shut the door as well. What a pair of dicks they are. Joshua. Oh, he's opened the door again. How's it going? Good. How was your day? Good. How was game? Good. What did you play? Good. <laughs> oh, God. Why do I have to live with these two? What did you play? Game. Give me the list quick. Gang Beast. Gang Beast. Yes. I've just been talking about Mr. Beast. <laughs> what else? Yeah, you... Mr. Beast is in the mafia now. Mr. Beast, crazy views on YouTube. What else do you play? Uh, that was pretty much it. Just Gang Beast. By the way, friends, Joshua endorses the game Gang Beasts. I've never heard of the game Gang Beasts. It's really good. It's like a fighting game. I've been talking to everyone about Dungeons & Dragons Adventure Begins, the board game. Yes. You enjoyed it? Yes. You want to play it again? Yes. You're going to be miserable if we don't win again? You were a bit of a sore loser when we didn't win. I, I said I was sorry, though. And you didn't get beat by anyone other than the game, because we were all playing together. Yeah. But when we didn't win, he was a bit of a misery guts, weren't you? I know. I was. <laughs> and then we came in the living room and watched Prison Break. Stop embarrassing me in front of friends. And I fell asleep. I'm not embarrassing you, I'm just saying you're a bit of a misery guts. I predict someone listening to this is eating toast right now. Whoever you are... I'm watching. <laughs> if you're eating toast right now as you listen to this, do send us a message and let us know. They What's mummy doing? Check your windows. What's mummy doing in the kitchen? Probably Is she going to come and talk to the friends? <laughs> I don't know. Ask her if yeah. she. Ask her if she'll come and say hello to the friends. Okay, I'll be. Leave right the door open so I can hear. <laughs> this might be funny. She's going to say no. Just wait. She's going to say no. She's going to say no. I'm listening. He's asked the question. I didn't hear her answer. What'd she say? Nope. <laughs> there you go, the friends. You're not getting Sarah James today. All right, shut the door so I can crack on. Love you, though. Go on, hurry up. I'm recording. 
He started making farty noises with his mouth. All right, so when Joshua opened the door, what I saw on the wall was skateboards. I've put the skateboards up on the wall. I bought a couple of skateboards, one for me, one for Joshua. I've been skateboarding myself a little bit outside, getting used to it. Need to find somewhere with very smooth floors. But um, I've put like a rack that holds skateboards on the wall in the hall. So that's pretty good. Uh, I had a message as well before I get into the cruise ship business. This is easily going to be a three-parter. I'm never going to get through the rest of the cruise ship in half an hour or less now. Uh, from Dr. Alex uh, asking, when I said about what would you like to come back, Dr. Alex said he quite liked the sing-alongs. <laughs> I bet he's the only one. I bet none of the rest of you like the sing-alongs. I want me to bring them back. That was a brutal era in this podcast, the sing-alongs. So I don't think they'll be returning, but I am going to finish today with a poem. So look forward to that. I'm going to do a short poem and start bringing some old features back. All right, let's crack on then. Let's talk about um, let's talk about what's been going on. I've got a note, by the way, at the top of my podcast list, top of my podcast notes that basically says work on features and structure. And the two things I've got down already are catch up on the last week and what's in the news. And we've talked about the news because we talked about the post office thing and I've talked about what happened last week. So now let's get through a couple of days of what happened on the cruise. So the next day on the list was going to Bangkok. And that was our first place that we were stopping. You remember day one, we arrived in Singapore, got on the ship and then sailed that night. And the next day was a sea day, and I did my show, my, my two shows, which is actually the same show twice, as you understand. But then the next day, we were docking early in Bangkok in the morning. And I got up early to go and check out the sunset, because I was awake at like 5.15, and I woke up to phone signal, which was a dream, local phone signal, and it, I got a text saying it would be £6 to get wife uh, to get internet booster signal so i paid it and i started using my phone i got 200 megabytes which lasts longer than you'd think as long as you don't watch videos so i'm using my phone and i realized that the sunset uh, the sunrise is going to be at like 603 so i think i'm going to get up and go and have a look at that so i went up on the top deck there was a nice couple up there who were just chilling and the woman turned around and she said uh good show <laughs> and I said you don't sound sure and she said oh I'm sure it was a good show I'm just not 100% sure that it was you and I said no it was definitely me and she went oh well we loved it last night fantastic job and uh, that was the first person who told me they'd really enjoyed the show so that was quite nice that day Sarah and I were going on a tour in Bangkok so we're obviously docked in Thailand. There's a two-hour bus ride to actual Bangkok. Now, there's a few different options you've got. You could have gone to Patea, which was much closer. It was a shorter, cheaper bus ride into a smaller town. But I figured you can't go to Thailand and be one of the trips be Bangkok and not go on it. It just seems silly to me to not take the opportunity. I might never go there again in my whole life. I might go there 10 times. There's no way to know. But I might never go there again. And Sarah might never go there again. So I figured we sort of have to go to Bangkok, really. It was the most expensive trip, but it wasn't expensive. It was like 40, I think it was 44 pounds each. So we put it on our room, as you do, and uh, we took the trip. And we got on the bus and our guide, she said that her name was Mae Teaster. Now, that wasn't a real name, but 
she said that her real name would have been too hard for us to pronounce. And she only said it once, and I can't remember what it was. And it wasn't, it wouldn't have been that difficult if she'd said it two or three times. It's always funny, isn't it, with names in different countries. It's because you're not necessarily used to the sounds that different countries always make and the way that they combine letters. And then they're just not familiar names to you. It's not like someone's called John or Michael or a name you've heard a million times. It's basically a word that someone tells you is a name, but you've never heard that word before. So that, I think for most people, is what creates the struggle. I don't mind it. I quite like learning different languages and other words, and I really make a point of having a really good bash at someone's name if I've never heard it before. Happens to me all the time. On stage, I say to somebody, what's your name? And they say it, and I sometimes have to go, I'm sorry, could you just repeat that? And they'll say it again, and I'll say, okay, and I might get it, and sometimes I'll say, can you just say it for me very slowly and really make a big deal out of the pronunciation? And they will, and then I'll hear it very clearly, and then I'm able to process it and remember it, and boom, I'll use it over and over again with them as my volunteer. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to that extent if the point of your questioning is to learn somebody's name. And names are important, aren't they? Names are such a big part of who we are. Psychologically, we love hearing our own names when people talk to us. They are, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? What is a name? It's the noise you have to... <laughs> Where did I hear this? I'm sure someone said, when you ask somebody's name, it's like saying, What's the noise I have to make to get your attention? And that's sort of it, isn't it? What is the noise I have to make to get your attention? It works with my dog. If I say Doc, he looks. He knows it's his name. If I say Frog, he doesn't look. If I say Beef, he doesn't look. If I say Jim, he doesn't look. But very clearly, if I say Doc, he looks. He knows that even a dog knows that's his name. And so, you know, when I say Joshua, you know, what is the noise I have to make to get your attention? It's a funny way to think of your name. But um, she said, for the purposes of this trip, my name is May Teaster. You can call me May. Nobody had a problem with that. <laughs> she was really nice. She was incredibly funny and very well informed. And I've said this before, but it always blows me away when you go to foreign countries and they know, the people there seem to know loads about the place, like even regular people who are not tour guides or anything, they know the population of where they live, they know when the city was founded, they seem to know all this historical information that I just don't know about Preston where I live. I always remember going to Iceland and meeting my friend, well he's my friend now, he wasn't my friend at the time, he was a random magician at the time who saw on social media that I was visiting Iceland and offered to give me a tour. And his name's Gunnar, Gunnar Sigge Jonsson. See, that's an unfamiliar name. Gunnar Sigge Jonsson is about as unfamiliar as it gets in a British mouth. But not that he was in my British mouth, but you know what I mean. And But I took the time and I learned it. And now I'll say Gunnar Sigge Jonsson with quite some confidence. But anyway, he drove me around. And he was like, yeah, so the population of Iceland is this many people. And we haven't had a McDonald's here for this many years. And all these facts. And I'm like... I don't know any of this shit about where I live. It's mad, isn't it? I suppose I do know the population of of England, well, of the UK. 
And maybe because Iceland is a smaller country, there's like five million people there. Maybe I can see, I don't know. I just always find it fascinating. I mean, don't get me wrong. It didn't surprise me that she knew lots of facts about Thailand and Bangkok. She was a tour guide in Thailand and Bangkok. So if she didn't know loads of facts, I'd have been surprised. But she did know a lot of facts. And it reminded me that other people often do when you go to other countries. Anyway, one thing I did notice that was quite funny is that all of the billboards had Asian faces on them, which, of course, is what you would expect when you're in Asia or the Far East. But a lot of billboards were like Japanese or Thai or Filipino, just Far Eastern faces on billboards and signs. And it really occurred to me as something that was different because, of course, when you are in England or anywhere in the United Kingdom, you see a bunch of billboards and big signs and stuff like that. And they do tend to have mixed ethnicity families on them. They do tend to have a lot of white faces, a lot of black faces, a lot of Indians, a lot of kind of mixed various ethnicities on the signs. But what you don't necessarily tend to see a lot of on billboards and signs in the UK is a lot of Chinese, Japanese, Thai people. And all of the signs in Thailand, it's funny actually, because the signs didn't have a lot of Thai people on them, but they did have a lot of Chinese and Japanese people on them, predominantly Japanese uh, in the main, from what I could, you know, from what I noticed. But adverts for TV shows and, you know, aftershaves and products and, you know, seeing even adverts for like, Gucci or um, various, you know, aftershave brands and uh, sort of high fashion uh, brands and things like that. Whereas I'm really used to seeing those adverts with Keira Knightley and Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling and people like that on. They predominantly had Chinese and Japanese celebrities. Well, I assume, you know, celebrities. I didn't know them, of course, but they had Chinese and Japanese celebrities on them. And that was kind of interesting for me. I liked it a lot because it made me very aware that I was in a different place because I wouldn't have been able to tell that from the written signage because one thing that did catch me off guard is that almost all of the signs in Thailand were in English. Billboards, adverts, road signs. They often had... Thai um, underneath, but predominantly all the signs were in English. That made it very easy to get around and to understand the prices of things and sort of navigate the city when we walked because it was very familiar and you were never caught out by the names of food not being in a language that you could read or understand. So it made ordering things very easy. And it also made you very aware of the fact that people probably spoke English when you walked up to them. I mean... I feel very uncomfortable when I'm in France or Spain or any country walking up to somebody and just speaking English. I always minimum will walk up and ask them in whatever the local language is, whether or not they can speak English, first of all, usually with an apology, <laughs> like, hi, I'm sorry, I don't speak French. Um, Excusez-moi, je ne parle pas très bien français, parlez-vous anglais. I'm sorry, my French is no good, do you speak English? And they'll usually laugh and say, oui, which is not a good start. What you really want is, yes. <laughs> but oui, I mean, if I didn't know that word, 
So do you or not? You know, you'd follow up with. Um, in Spain, lo siento para mi español, hablo inglés. Uh, I'm sorry, my Spanish is no good, you speak English. I'll happily walk up to people and say that and then speak to them in English. I really don't like walking up to people in Germany or France or anywhere, Spain or any country, and just straight out speaking English and assuming that they will understand. But when you're on a cruise ship and you've got three different countries in three different days, it's not necessarily easy to go like, okay, I'm going to learn to speak Malay or I'm going to learn to speak Vietnamese or I'm going to learn to speak... Um, I mean, any language where you're in a place for a short amount of time. And the languages are so unfamiliar and they use such... Unf Sarah James is back. Say hello. She shut the door again. Uh, the sounds that they make in their languages are so unfamiliar as well. It's, it's almost like your mouth is not necessarily even capable of making the sounds required to effectively speak those languages sometimes. So I don't like that, that, that I can't go up to someone and say in Vietnamese, hi, I'm sorry, I don't speak Vietnamese. Do you speak English? But, or, you know, any place... But in Thailand, all of the signs were in English. So I didn't necessarily feel that same pressure. I mean, most British people don't give a fuck, by the way. They'll just walk up and speak English anywhere in the world. They'll just bowl up and ex assume that the other person speaks English. But I'm not really like that. So I sort of, you know, I, I was uh, allayed from that fear by the fact that all the signs were in English. Anyway, we took the trip and the guide was very nice and we all tipped the guide at the end. Although it was quite funny, there was another passenger on the ship that was like, uh, what should we tip the guide? And I remember him speaking to his girlfriend and going like, does 20 seem enough? And I remember thinking, in this currency, that 20 note that you're holding, that feels like a lot of money. Because <clears throat> in England, like a 20 would be a big tip. But a 20 in that currency that you're holding is like 67p. So he'd probably be better off not tipping anything. It'd be quite offensive, really, to tip such a low... I'd probably rather have no tip at all than... I, I don't think he was being cheap or rude. He just didn't understand the currency to the point that he realised that was such a small tip. So <laughs> it's quite funny. And uh, not that... I don't think it's a place where tips are necessarily expected, but it was funny that the guy was like, let's tip a 20, like as if it was a big amount. But those kind of misunderstandings happen all the time, as I found out, because when I, we got to Vietnam, I took a million dong out. It still makes me laugh that their currency is called dong. But um, I took a million out and it was like 40 pounds. So, you know, you're an instant millionaire over there because they're just, the money is different. It's worked out differently. Uh, anyway, we got off the bus and we made a beeline for Chinatown. We basically walked there because we knew that that's where the most exciting food markets and stuff would be. We knew it would be a bit manic. We'd looked into it a bit and we knew Chinatown was basically going to be the place to go. And it did not disappoint. I mean, it was fairly insane. I've never been to China, but I think that the Chinatown in Thailand is probably about as close to actual China as I've ever been because it looked like China. I mean, when you go to China in, when you go to Chinatown in London, it looks like London, but with 
Chinese lanterns and some Chinese metal gates and, you know, Chinese lettering on places and lots of Chinese restaurants and food and stuff. But it still looks like London. But when you go to Chinatown in Thailand, it looks a lot like what you've seen pictures of actual China look like if you haven't been to China. So if someone's been to actual China and Chinatown in Thailand, please feel free to write in and let me know. But it felt a lot like what actual China would have been like. And I have to say, I loved it so much. And so did Sarah. It made me want to visit China so much. Like, I really, really want to go there now. And I mean, the biggest giveaway is that almost everybody in every business in every stand and most of the people milling around even like you know just walking around and buying stuff and living there looked Chinese as well it was very different from seeing Thai people to being suddenly surrounded by Chinese people you're very aware of the area that you were in this is definitely Chinatown everybody looks Chinese everything looks Chinese all the signs are Chinese we may as well be in China and I couldn't have been more thrilled. Sarah and I loved every single step, every shop, everything that we saw. Some of it was just crazy, though. There were, like, pharmacy kind of stores. There was one that had a giant jar, and it was full of dried seahorses. And then there was a place selling, like, shark fins. And then there was a place that did shark fin soup. And they advertised that it was made with real shark fins, which in the UK, I'm pretty sure, is illegal. I'm going to Google it now. Ah, uh, is shark fin soup illegal UK? Uh, the Shark Fin Act, well, this is already a good start, uh, passed into law 29th of June, making a major step in cementing the UK as a global leader in shark conservation. The act will ban the import of export, uh, import and export of detached shark fins, including all products containing shark fins, such as shark fin tinned soup. And that's on the 29th of June this year. So shark fins are illegal in the UK as of uh, the middle of last year. Sorry, because it's a new year now, isn't it? So there you go. I thought it was illegal, but clearly it's not illegal in Thailand because there were shark fins for sale everywhere and restaurants advertising shark fin soup with real shark fins. Now, don't get me wrong. I've eaten it when I was a kid. I remember having shark fin soup from local takeaways and out in restaurants and stuff. I definitely remember having eaten shark fin soup before. I've got to be honest, I didn't really think there was anything wrong with it back then. I didn't know that sharks needed to be preserved in the same way as, you know, in 100 years from now, people will probably go, you used to eat cows. There's only 400 of them left. Oh, my God. Can't believe you used to eat these. When I was a kid, people were eating shark fin soup all the time. I wonder if it was real shark fin soup or if it was something else. Because, of course, you know, you get crab sticks now, don't you? But they don't really have crab in them. So, I don't know. Anyway, um, those places were pretty crazy. There was, like, bats and stuff that were in, like... Um, vacuum-packed packaging, seahorses, shark fins. There was kind of like a selection box of 
fucked up weird creatures and critters. There was all sorts of stuff that I've basically never seen before. And it was quite chaotic, but in a way that I really enjoyed. <laughs> I do like that sort of thing. It feels like an adventure when you're surrounded by stuff you don't recognize and is not culturally familiar to you. I really enjoy that. That really felt like, oh, we are far from home now. And we are having a very local experience. And this is great. It's eye-opening. It's educational. It was fun. People were super nice. Just, it was a great time. I bought Sarah a jade bracelet, like these little jade balls around a bracelet, which turned out, it's so nice, by the way, but it turned out when we checked the price to be less than a pound. I mean, I honestly don't know how they're making money on any of this stuff. It's just crazy. Uh, we tried loads of street food. We had um, this soup broth thing. I wish I could remember the name, but we had this soup broth thing that was really nice that had all of these different like fish balls and fish heads <laughs> and uh, noodles and stuff. That was really nice. We tried um, all sorts of different street food. Street food is going to go on to be kind of a, a theme of, of the rest of this trip, but the street food was amazing. We saw lots of temples, golden Buddhas. I mean, in Thailand, they fucking love Buddha. They absolutely cannot get enough Buddha. There's temples and statues, golden Buddhas. There's a reclining Buddha that's like lying on their side that's about 60 feet tall and people go mad for that. There's temples everywhere that are full of Buddhas. They just are mad on Buddha. They love him. It's like, I don't know, it's way more than in the UK where you have like Christians. There's so many Buddha temples and statues and stuff. I'd say it's more than Catholics here. I mean, it's dying out here. It doesn't seem to be dying out over there. Talking of religion, by the way, the Pope has come out this week and said that he thinks... Uh, their, their stance on abortion is the same. They've now said that gay marriage is all right, as long as it doesn't become a regular part of church services. But they've also said that surrogacy is should not happen. He doesn't like, the Pope doesn't like the idea of surrogacy, which, of all the people to say that, has he not heard the story of Jesus's birth? <laughs> I mean, Mary was surely the original artificial insemination. She's the OG. She is the artificial insemination OG. I'd say arguably, considering the technology hadn't been invented by science, she was the very first person to ever be artificially inseminated. So if God doesn't like surrogacy, who does? That's mental. I don't understand it at all. How can the Pope say he doesn't like surrogacy? Anyway, we're getting off topic. They absolutely love Buddha in uh, Thailand and God love them. It is nice. I don't really know the religious aspects about it. I don't know a huge amount about what it all means necessarily, but I know that there's a lot of statues and I know that they like him a lot and I know that they light a lot of candles and they have a lot of different things that they do. Like on the first day of the year, they go and they sort of, um, there's a thing that they do to get good luck for the year where they pay it forward and do something for someone else and purge themselves of the year before and sins and all that. And, um, you know, I mean, what can I say? They're very enlightened spiritual people. There's just Buddhas everywhere. Then after the end of the tour, which, by the way, was hot as balls. I mean, we're talking like in Celsius, we're talking 36, 
37, 38 degrees plus humidity. It's absolutely monstrous. So we're walking around absolutely sweltering. I'll tell you what, it was so bad. Even Sarah said it was too hot and she absolutely loves the sun. So yeah, even she said it's a bit warm today <laughs> to be fair i was just wet you once you come to terms with the fact that you're going to be wet you just have to move on but you just think right i've come out i'm bone dry i've got showered i've put clothes on i'm leaving the ship this is going to be nice and two minutes off the ship your thighs are sticking together your t-shirt's wet through you just feel like an absolute mess so once you come to terms with that you can relax at the end of the day, we go back to the place where we're supposed to be meeting the tour guide. And Sarah and I are right on time. We're two minutes early. Almost everybody is there. So we're waiting for the rest of the group, waiting for the rest of the group. We're up to 30 people. We're waiting for two more. Nobody knows who the two people we're waiting for are. It takes 10 minutes for everybody to turn up, by the way. Some people were late, which pissed us all off. But what was confusing was that... After 10 minutes of lateness, we're still waiting for two more people. And then it gets to 20 minutes. And the guide has been very, very sure about the fact that we all have to be back on time. If we're not all back on time, we're going to get in trouble. We need to be back on time. 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And our feet are all killing. Everybody's too hot. Thankfully, we're all in this underground thing that's got air conditioning and everything waiting for the tour buses. But we're all late. We're all wondering, where are these two extra people? And all of the other tours that day are meeting in the same place from our ship. We've seen them all leave. Everybody's gone. Turns out our guide has miscounted when people have been getting off the bus. And she's accidentally counted two people who are not there. So we're all waiting half an hour for two people who don't exist. <laughs> Which, as you can imagine, severely pissed everybody off. So anyway, after half an hour, we get back on the coach. And thankfully, the coach driver's been taking lessons from Sandra Bullock. So we're back in no time and all is good. I wonder why I didn't drive that fast on the way there. It would have been lovely. But uh, we get back to the ship and it's New Year's Eve. So we've had our day in Bangkok. We've had a lovely time out with May Teaster. We've eaten street food. We've seen dried seahorses. And uh, we've absolutely loved Bangkok. And we've loved Chinatown especially. I took loads of great street photos. It was fantastic. And now finally we're back on the boat and it's going to be New Year's Eve. So we chill out a bit. We go to the pool. We have a little bit of time in the jacuzzi. We get showers and stuff. We get ready and we head out for New Year's Eve, Sarah and I. And... Um, it's really nice. It's New Year's Eve at sea. We've sailed and I'm really determined for us to have a bit of a nice time because New Year's Eve years ago, I took Sarah on a boat to Amsterdam and I fell asleep before midnight. Literally before midnight came, I fell asleep on the boat and we'd been to the uh, cafeteria thing that staff could go to. It was just a ferry and we had this Thornton's, this box of Thornton's chocolates and we made sandwiches and stuff in them for later and we used the box to carry them back to the room and Sarah famously harangues me all the time about the fact that I fell asleep and while I was asleep, she sat and ate these sandwiches in this box as the bells went for 12 o'clock. And then she woke me up and wished me Happy New Year. And I said, yeah, Happy New Year. And 
<laughs> fell straight back to sleep again. So I was determined for us to have a nice time. And we did. We went up on the deck. We got champagne. We got other drinks. We stood outside. The ball dropped midnight. We filmed ourselves dancing about and, you know, all that. Fireworks were going off. Um, all of the crew and the passengers were dancing and shaking hands and all that sort of stuff. And then we went to the cocktail bar and we sat and drank cocktails until the small hours which was great, and I really loved it. I had um, these smoky cocktails in a cabinet, and Sarah tried pina coladas, and we, this is we'd realise now we're on premium drinks package, of course, so we're just trying all the premium cocktails we can possibly get our hands on. It was absolutely marvellous. And then the next day we wake up, and it's sea day, but it was a great new year. Anyway, I've just realised I'm over the hour, so with the sea day to go, uh, Saigon slash Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, another sea day, and arriving back and overnighting in Singapore, left to tell you about. I'm going to save those until next week. So, just like the American trip, we're going to break the cruise ship down into three parts, but I'm going to finish the cruise ship next week because I'm not going to bang on about what happened this week as much. So, tomorrow I'm at the session, it's all happening. Hopefully, when I speak to you a week from now, I'll be deep in the midst of some very healthy habits and all is good, friends. Onwards and and upwards. So I hope you're well. I hope New Year's treating you well. 2024 is off to a flying start. We're 11 days in. That's this week's podcast, and I'll see you next week for more adventures at sea. Bye, friends. Before you go, I'm back. I just realized as I was about to upload the podcast and I looked at the computer that I hadn't read the poem I was going to read. So here it is very quickly. It is a short poem by Ogden Nash, who is a uh, American poet, writes short poems there's one of his um poems that i know off by heart which is a uh, cowser of the bovine ilk one end is moo the other milk <laughs> it's very short anyway ogden nash is an american poet died in 1971 and uh this poem is called the people upstairs and i quite like it i knew it already but i didn't i don't know it off by heart but i like it so the people upstairs the people upstairs all practice ballet their living room is a bowling alley. Their bedroom is full of conducted tours. Their radio is louder than yours. They celebrate weekends all week. When they take a shower, your ceilings leak. They try to get their parties to mix by supplying their guests with pogo sticks. And when their fun at last debates, they go to the bathroom on roller skates. I might love the people upstairs more if they only lived on a different floor. So that is The People Upstairs by Ogden Nash. And maybe poems will be back. So if you want to hear some poems, uh, do let me know and let me know which ones you want to hear if you've got any favourites. Because otherwise it'll be Rage Against the Dying of the Light by Dylan Thomas, which, as you know, I absolutely love. Do not go gentle into that good night. But we've done If and we've done Dylan Thomas. So um, Rudyard Kipling, If, of course. So, uh, you know, send me any favourites and I'll put them in. All right, that's it. Bye, friends.